Section 11 of The Influence of Monarchs by Frederick Adams Woods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 11. Russia. Muscovite greatness begins with Ivan III in the latter part of the 15th century. Like several modern countries, France, Spain, Portugal and Prussia. The territories which pass today under these names were at first very restricted in area. For this reason, the question of mere land expansion becomes here especially important in relation to national power. Russia was not only consolidated and founded by Ivan III, but also greatly extended under this ruler. The most cursory glance of Russian history makes it noticeable that the great territorial expansions, the most broad and striking facts in Russia's growth, have taken place under her four greatest sovereigns, Ivan III, Ivan the fourth, Peter the Great, and Catherine the second. Furthermore, the expansions practically tell the whole story, because the losses of territory are hardly to be considered. Pomerania and Finland came in under Elizabeth, Smolensk and Chernigov under Alexis. Otherwise, no important territorial expansion took place except under the four above-mentioned rulers. This means that there were twenty periods of rule between Ivan the third, fourteen sixty-two and the beginning of the 19th century, in which territorial expansion did not take place. Thus, a broad initial survey of Russian history shows a high correlation between conditions and rulers. Other important fluctuations of fortune, the questions of relative amount of law and order, condition of the army, treasury, commerce, agriculture, etc., also follow fairly closely the royal influence, but there are here and there unexpected deviations which need to be observed and counted. For the first five periods, 1462 to 1584, the whole trend is almost perfectly in accordance with the dynastic facts. Under Ivan the Great, the land was almost doubled in extent, and the internal state of the country was also much improved. This continued in a less notable way during the reign of his son, Vasily V, who followed the policy of his father. He was more industrious and brilliant, more exceedingly tenacious of purpose, and succeeded in most of his undertakings. Five years of minority, 1533 to 1538, which are not minus in their tendency followed, but the nine years which closed this minority are in every way disastrous. The first portion of the regency was in the hands of the able and resolute queen mother, Helen Glinska, who kept the disruptive forces in check. The last part was devoid of royal control, was characterized by intrigues, murders, uprisings and disorders, in which the Tartars again harried the empire. Russia's future at this time looked very dark. Under Ivan the Terrible, 1547-1584, who, with all his mad excesses, was an intellectual, energetic, and able statesman, another period of royal progress occurred. Ivan was no soldier, and his excesses were the result rather of astuteness than generalship. The conquest of Kazan in 1552 was very important, as it opened the whole Volga Basin to the Russians. Ivan led his troops in person, but their victory was due more to overwhelming numbers than to merit. In the other direction, towards the Baltic, Ivan IV was not successful. Here he lost territory, though not to an important extent. On the other hand, the home region of the Cossacks was annexed. Also, the first conquest of Siberia must be noted as having taken place during this reign. This was accomplished by the Cossacks themselves, a mere handful of whom, under their leader, Yermak, brought the country under their nominal subjection. Yermak then presented his conquest to the Tsar, in exchange for which he received full pardon for certain former offences. Previous to this, he had carried his raids in the wrong direction. 
having called a robber instead of a conqueror, and a price having put on his head. Ivan had a considerable faculty for getting other people to take the burden on the risks. In this way, part of the crimes of the Tartars was conquered in 1555. The successful raids were made in this territory by the Polish Cossacks, while Ivan remained at home. All these conquests appear to be due chiefly to the general weakness of the opponents. The Siberians were too primitive and widely scattered to offer any resistance. Kazan and Astrakhan, though important cities, were comparatively easy of subjugation, owing to their location and poor defence. Ivan's merit was that he realised where the weakness lay and appreciated what could and what could not be done, and stopped there. Thus against the advice of his counsellors, he refused to claim jurisdiction over the entire Crimea, the actual realisation of which would have been very doubtful at the time. In all the wiles of statecraft, Ivan IV showed himself very astute, and in spite of his fiendishly brutal character, his reign was in many respects beneficial to Russia. He put a stop to anarchical conditions. He strengthened the defence of the empire by building many fortresses. He favoured trade with foreign countries and welcomed foreigners, especially the English and Scotch, who came to Russia in great numbers. It was then that Russia first emerged from the southeastern isolation. Activity in the arts and much building in Moscow, the capital, gives some impression of an advancing civilization, where also for a very brief time a printing press was set up. The reign which follows counts one against sovereign rule, strictly speaking, for it was in most respects favorable and progressive. Yet the Tsar Fedor was a Roy Fenent, almost an imbecile. The empire was strengthened, the Tartars repulsed, Smolensk fortified, Archangel built, Swedes driven into Narva, and the Siberians still further subjugated. In addition to feats of arms, the general commercial relations of the country were broadened, trade passing through new channels. The other picture is one to suggest the presence of some single vigorous personality. The real ruler is found in Boris Godunov, a Russian nobleman who later raised himself to the actual throne. This man had married his sister of the Tsar, and was at the death of Fyodor elected his successor. His actual reign, 1598-1605, was a continuation of his efforts when merely the power behind the throne. Yet it was an unprogressive period, an instance of circumstances being too powerful. The famine of 1601-1603 is said to have killed a million people, the results were horrible in the extreme. Like so many famines in other countries during the Middle Ages, the inevitable sequence followed. Robberies, murders, pestilence, and even cannibalism. Tsar himself acted nobly and did what he could do to alleviate the widespread sufferings. But neither in this nor in other ways did he succeed in making himself popular, either with the lower or upper classes. He was an upstart and a tyrant. That his rule was really beneficial to Russia as a whole, was not appreciated either by the ignorant masses or the self-seeking nobles. There had always been a story that the younger brother of the late Tsar Fedor had been poisoned, and that the parvenue Boris knew something about it. The real fate of this prince, whose name was Demetrius, is still shrouded in mystery. There has given rise to much interest and speculation on account of the various impostors who came forward in his guise. The first false Demetrius was a remarkable character. Of this we may be certain, although it does not appear clear just who he was, where he came from, or by whom he was first supported. It was his appearance upon the scene in October 1604, which occupied the last six months of Boris's rule in the disturbances of civil war. Before the rivalries were settled, Boris suddenly died, leaving a son, Fyodor II, 
who was then but sixteen years of age. This lad ruled but seven weeks before he was put out of the way. Demetrius was crowned sire and gave proofs of personal strength and wisdom, but his reign was brief, as he in turn was treacherously murdered before a year had passed. There was a temporary re-establishment of a much more peaceful state of affairs. The impostor made himself very popular, both before and after his coronation. In fact, the Tsaritsa Martha, the mother of the real Demetrius, did not dare do otherwise than pretend to identify him and acknowledge him as her own son. So great was the enthusiasm which he had created. All these measures were extremely just and humane. A number of beneficial laws were enacted. There were even in their short time elements of more flourishing condition of trade and commerce. The diligence of the new Tsar was exemplary. He presided over the council every day, and after listening for hours, with an indulgent smile, to the intermediate and unprofitable debates of the boyars, would in a few moments unravel and elucidate the most complicated questions. Sometimes he gently reproached the boyars with their ignorance. I must send you abroad to learn things, he would say. He attended all petitions personally. When his friends, the Poles, warned him to beware of suspicious characters, he replied there are two ways of ruling subjects, by tormenting or by encouraging them. I prefer the latter way. A too great freedom from suspicion was, however, the cause of his untimely death at the hands of his rival, Vasily Shustky. We may well regret that history gives us no little certainty as the antecedents of this extraordinary usurper, the first Demetrius, as a brief measurement of his potential possibilities. His rival obtained the object of his ambitions, and was for a short time theoretically Tsar, but his position was always a disputed one. His reign, 1606 to 1610, and the three years following them together of the darkest period in Russian history, Vasily Shuisky must be credited with a certain amount of ability, especially in craftiness and intrigue, but his timidity and weakness for beating him a higher than mediocre rating. Bain gives a fair summary thus. Vasily's peculiar vices tended to increase the general confusion. He was a nearsighted, nervous little old man, very shrewd and very stingy, a firm believer in magic, averse from action, and with his ears ever open to spies and detractors. As if his authority were not already sufficiently limited by his character, he proceeded to limit it still further by swearing to punish nobody without the consent of his counsel. At the same time, he foolishly eliminated his own partitions by withholding from them the promised rewards for their services, although they knew him to be very wealthy. In these circumstances, a fresh crop of pretenders was only a matter of time. Not only did three suedo Demetrius appear upon the scene as instigators of lawlessness and rebellions, but the general confusion and disintegration which ensured all the old enemies of Moscow pounced upon her. Poles, Cossacks, and Tatars all invaded Russian territory, either separately or as allies of each other. The burning, slaughter, and pillage which Russia suffered at this time nearly reduced her to annihilation. Shuisky was defeated, captured, and sent away to Poland. Russia was finally saved from the Poles, and this particular national recovery came about in a peculiar way. The end of the disintegration and the beginning of a brighter outlook took place under a national religious movement which was initiated by a certain monk, Dionysius. Three other leaders, Prince and Posarsky and Kazma Minin, a butcher of Novogorod, and one of the gentry named Leopunov, should also be accredited with the work of explaining the Poles, which seems to be much more of a general and personal movement. There is one point, however, on the other side of the question. The King of Poland at this time was a weak Sigismund III. Victories over the Poles made a good count towards progress, but general disorder and lawlessness persisted. The Poles still held many districts, and also, 
as the national territory was considered, the period known as the Interregnum is not more than of middle grade. Sigismund III of Poland, though the candidate of one party for the throne of Russia, was either too feeble or too unlucky to meet with success. After that, the Russians looked about to find some of their own countrymen on whom to confer the crown. The choice fell on a young prince of the noble family of Romanov. Michael by name, who was nearest heir to the old dynasty, was elected boyar and received with acclamation by the people. This prince, then only sixteen years of age, owed his election, in part at least to the influence of his father, Philaret. The father was raised to a position of joint ruler along with the son. It does not appear that Michael was ever very vigorous. Certainly he was entirely a negative factor in the commencement of his reign. Both father and son were admirable characters, just and generous, and praised for their many virtues. Philaret, the father, is highly lauded for his energy and administrative ability, and the amelioration of Russia during his reign is usually attributed to him. Nothing extraordinary or revolution took place, but in comparison to the immediate past, a general tone was decidedly favourable. There was a diminution of lawlessness and robbery, and improvement in the army. The reign is especially noticeable for an increased activity in trades, crafts, and arts, born to Russia by Germans, who emigrated there at the instigation of the throne. After the death of Philaret in 1633, Michael carried on the government alone in a credible manner. Michael was not perhaps a great, but was very certainly a good ruler. The universal belief in his honesty and conscientiousness was fully justified, and during his reign, the downtrodden and overburdened Russian people looked to the throne alone for relief and justice, nor looked in vain. During the five years' minority of Alexis, 1654 to 1650, the government remained in strong hands. Boris Morosov, non-royal, was in control, and if he erred, it was on the side of too rigid severity. The army was strengthened and improved, and there was also an important codification of the laws, 1648. But the value of this legislation is problematical. The chief points which count against the regency are the numerous revolts and uprisings. Altogether, this period is not a long or important one. It was a fairly reputably managed minority. The actual reign of Alexis was one of progress and importance. It paved the way for the greater period of Peter the Great. The character of Alexis was similar to that of his father and grandfather. He had an active, diligent, and well-balanced mind. The facts most worth noting are that he was extremely kind and affectionate, courteous in his manners, not at all a tyrant, yet was able to rule successfully over this wild and disorderly people. Save for occasional outbursts of passion, which appear to have been rather examples of righteous indignation, his character was almost saint-like in its mildness. Alexis died in sixteen seventy six. His son, Theodore III, followed upon the throne, but as he was only fourteen at the time, and died before he became twenty one, it is best to consider his reign, sixteen seventy six to sixteen eighty two, as if it were a minority. There was some intrigue in settling the question of succession, but after that events are singularly favourable considering the state of rule. It is true that Theodore was granted his minority and thus became the titulary ruler in 1679, but as he was then but 17, and there is not sufficient evidence that he acted otherwise than under the direction of his favourites, it is more in keeping with the plan I have attempted to follow, not to accredit the events of 1679 or 1682 to him personally. The reforms any part of the general infiltration into Russia of Western ideas. A more humane penal code was introduced, also better control of the pauper classes. 
but the most important change occurred to the army and consisted in the abolition of the Miesnichesko, or priority of place. This system of family precedence had been carried to a ridiculous extreme. All ranks, both civil and military, been determined by an appeal to pedigrees. The measure which led to its abolition is thus described by Bain. The initiator of this salutary measure was Prince Vasily, Vasilovich Golitsyn, sometimes called the Great Golitsyn, who now comes prominently forward for the first time. Golitsyn, who belonged to one of the most ancient families in Muscovy, was unusually well educated. He understood German and Greek as well as his mother tongue, and could express himself fluently in Latin. Born in 1643, he entered the service of Alexis at an early age, and in 1676 was created in Bunyarin. Sent to the Ukraine to provide for its defence against the incursions of the Turks and Tatars, he served with distinction during the famous Chigirin campaign, and returned to Moscow with conviction that the Mayetsnitschesko was at the root of Muscovy's deplorable military inefficiency. The young Tsar was readily convinced of his arguments, and a special ukaz forthwith removed at one stroke an abuse which had so long appeared unassailable. The Raznyagdonivnya Knigri, or records of rank to which the boyars had been wont to appeal as infallible authorities in all their claims for precedence, were at the same time destroyed. Henceforth, all appointments to the civil and military services were to be determined by the merit and the will of the Gusodar. The fact that the dying Theodore Fyodor could so easily remove the deep-lying and far-reaching and abuse as a striking testimony to the steadily, if silent, advance of literal ideas in Muscovite society, even since the death of Alexis, it is often too much taken for granted that Peter created modern Russia. The foundations of modern Russia were laid while he was still in the nursery. After the death of Fyodor, the power was seized by his sister Sylvia, a woman of great will and ambition which she directed towards gaining her own selfish designs. Golitsyn became her paramour, and was openly acknowledged as such. Both were mentally gifted, but they did not succeed in bringing about prosperity. General circumstances here appeared to hold the sway. Golitsyn conducted an expedition of 150,000 Muscovites and Cossacks against the Tsars of the Crimea in 1687-1688, a disastrous undertaking, not because of the superiority of the enemy, but on account of the nature of the country and the vast fires which obliged a retreat. Intrigues, plot, and insurrections filled the period. The figure who next appeared upon the scene was an example, if ever there were was one, which proved that circumstances may be the sport of men. In Peter the Great there is a royal personality whose genius is unquestioned, as a little boy, he showed no precociousness and was rather backward than otherwise. But by seventeen, his real qualities began to appear. It was at this early age that he first took matters into his own hands and became the actual ruler of his vast and turbulent country. His education had been grossly neglected. Everything that he learned after he was eight years old was self-taught. He was extremely restless, inquisitive, and bent on fast schemes, the precise direction of which he scarcely at first knew. Russia must have a navy and a sea door for her trade. No pains were spared to effect this gigantic work. Internally the nation needed to be aroused to Western civilization. No opposition could withstand his passion for reforms. The energy, the will, the courage, and above all, the magnetic enthusiasm of Peter the Great alone make him a gigantic figure in history. 
For purely intellectual qualities, Peter does not perhaps belong to the very highest grades of royalty. But there is no doubt but that his mental capacity was great. Neither is there any doubt but that his long reign, 1689-1725, was one of the greatest eras of progress for Russia. Important increases in territory at the expense of Sweden, especially the acquisition of a seaboard and founding of St. Petersburg, the betterment of the army and the creation of a navy, an increase in the trades, commerce and arts are the chief features. There is nothing of importance to record on the detracting side. After the death of the great monarch, his widow Catherine became empress of all Russia, and she had neither education nor the inclination to govern. The real control of affairs was divided and the hands of a newly constituted bureau of supreme privy council of eight or ten persons. The government was conducted in a very credible manner, and although a brief and unimportant period must be counted, as far as it goes, in the plus direction, there are but two features worth mentioning. First, the diplomatic policy, which was peaceful and cautious and sufficiently dignified to command respect. Second, a lightening of the poll tax, which had weighed heavily on the peasantry. Although Menshikov exercised the ascendancy, it does not appear that he, or any other person, is to be accredited with this period of progress. At the death of Catherine I, the Supreme Privy Council acted for three years, 1727 to 1730, but there is little to admire in their conduct, nor are the events of sufficient importance or definiteness to make worthwhile any comments on this brief period. The reign of Anne Ivanova, 1730 to 1740, is more important, but its total value is difficult to estimate. If it be, as Bain contends, a progressive period, then it must be accredited to some other cause than the direct influence of the Empress, who at least was not more than mediocre in capacity. For the sake of the argument, we may count that much against royal influences, but it must be considered with Morfield that the reign cannot be said to have added much luster to the annals of Russia. The very next two periods occupy the minority of Ivan the Fourth. They are very brief, 1740-1741, devoid of any interest, either of their court intrigues, and of anything retrograding in their tenancy. Elizabeth, who reigned from 1741 to 1762, though uncultivated and immoral, possessed a very keen mind. Russia made great gains during her period. Even if one is reluctant to accredit much of the individuality of Elizabeth, the same cannot be said of Catherine the Great. The expansion of Russia under this woman's management, 1762 to 1796, is as notable as a decline which followed on a poor, 1796 to 1801. On the whole, Russia shows less identity between ruler and conditions than might be expected. There are six conflicts against ten parallelisms, but these conflicts do not appear very significant when looked into one by one. The progressive period, 1584 to 1598, although under the titular rule of the weak Theodore I, was really in the hands of Boris Godunov, who became an actual sovereign later. The minority of Alexis, 1645-1650, was progressive, and success may be ascribed to Boris Morislov. The period of Theodore III is more difficult to explain, but lasted only six years. The reign of Catherine I does not mean much, as this was terminated inside of two years, 1725-1727. The reigns of Han, 1730-1740, and Sophia, 1682-1689, on the very contrary, seem to be much affected by general causes. One reigned favourably, another unfavourably, so the great epochs in Russia's expansion took place under great sovereigns, and that this was 
not due to the absolutism of a former government is proved by comparisons with the more democratic periods in sweden and the netherlands early spain and early portugal end of section eleven